The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febc.org. We have a God-shaped emptiness in every one of us. and You and I have the answer for that, so we want to be speaking the truth. But the right way to do that, of course, is to do that in love. To share this with you as beggars helping beggars find bread is the great privilege of life. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person, a conversation centered on the stories of people called of God to serve kingdom purposes. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and you're about to meet Jim Dennison, someone who thinks carefully about the issues of our day and interprets them through a biblical perspective. Stay tuned for our conversation. These weekly programs are made possible by the Far East Broadcasting Company, who is proclaiming the gospel right now in many countries through its radio and internet programs. FEBC is celebrating its 75th anniversary and is looking ahead as the Lord tarries to continue its ministry until all have heard. Take a few moments to learn more at febc.org. And look for this program online at firstpersoninterview.com. You can replay this conversation today, plus see what's on the upcoming schedule at firstpersoninterview.com. Dr. Jim Dennison is Chief Vision Officer of the Dennison Forum. His daily article and podcast reach nearly a quarter of a million people globally. He's also an author and has served as a pastor and seminary professor. As we talked, I wanted to know how he views his calling and why he does what he does. My specific call is to speak biblical truth to cultural issues. What I'm trying to do is to help Christians to think biblically about the issues of our day so they can then use their influence more effectively in the culture for Christ. Mm -hmm. So we do that in a wide variety of ways. I write an article every day that we send out to more than 200,000 subscribers. I write a couple of Facebook articles a day that we put on our website, and we have three or four tweets a day, and then a lot of podcasts and radio opportunities such as this. Our Monthly reach is about 1.7 million at wow. this point in time. And the context in all of that is really to help Christians to look at culture through a biblical lens. I believe we will either look at the Bible through culture or culture through Scripture. Mm-hmm. I want us to see culture through Scripture so that then we can make an impact for the Lord. Yeah. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar then with what you're doing. And if they're not, we'll put informational links at firstpersoninterview.com so they can uh, check up on the Denison Forum and take advantage of all that great thinking. But there's a backstory to why you do what you do, and I I want to begin there, if you don't mind. It has to do with your father. It does. Thank you for the chance to have that conversation and tell that story. That really is exactly why we do what we do and really why uh, my sense of call has been formed as it has. So I grew up in Houston, Texas. Uh, the older of two brothers. Uh, My family was wonderful in so many ways, a loving, supportive, encouraging family, but no spiritual life at all. Never going to church on any level, in fact, pretty resistant to spiritual conversation. And the reason for that goes back to my father's story. My dad grew up in a small town in Kansas. We found out some years later from his friends that he was so active in his church growing up that some of his friends thought he might actually go into vocational ministry. Hmm. Well, World War II started. Dad enlisted in the Army. He could type, so he was made a radio operator. He and 300 men were stationed on an island in the South Pacific, so my father could operate his radio relay station. Well, that radio station was, of course, a threat to the Japanese, and so they began shelling, trying to knock out this radio, and one day, one of the shells hit the radio, knocked out the radio, killed a lot of the men. The Allies, when the radio went dead, assumed the men were all dead, and they left them on the island. So two and a half years later, as the Allies were going island to island through the South Pacific, they came to my father's island and found my father and 16 other survivors. 
who had lived that length of time there. It wasn't a story that only told one time. Yeah. It was an experience I can't begin. Yeah, that was typical that generation, wasn't it? They just didn't so talk typical. about it. Yeah, my dad so didn't either. Typical. Right. Not only what they went through was something they really couldn't express in words, but there was just this, and I so admire this, just a sense of, of patriotism, a, a gratitude. Dad, dad was never at any point uh, anything but grateful to be able to serve the country. He was never angry. I've had people ask me as they hear this story, was he angry at all of this? And he absolutely was not. He didn't want this to be made into a story. He was grateful to be able to serve the country and uh, didn't want to tell a story that in any way would uh, move against that. And so he came back from that experience, however, and did not attend church again to the day he died. Really? And so I grew up in a loving home, but no spiritual life and all my dad's questions. Hmm. Well, that's really what moved me in this direction. There's a long story short here, but at the age of 15, I was invited by friends to ride their bus to church. Uh, they were out knocking on doors, trying to find kids to ride the bus to church. And my father felt my brother and I should have some spiritual experience. So he insisted we ride the bus to church. And that's how we heard the gospel. I eventually became a, a believer, still had all these doubts, all these questions that my father had. C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity was absolutely instrumental in helping me to think intellectually about my faith, to, to be at home with doubts and questions and the challenges that we all have. So one thing led to another one of being called to ministry, did a PhD in philosophy at Southwestern Seminary and taught on that faculty for several years and have pastored four churches over the years as well and taught on four faculties. But the really the current that runs through all of that are my dad's questions, hmm. speaking to the issues that we all have, trying to help people to think intellectually about their faith in a way that will allow them to impact culture more effectively. 11 years ago, when I got a chance to do that full-time, which is really the genesis of this ministry. Yeah, very interesting. So you are answering the questions your father had, even though he didn't always express them, right? That's exactly right. In fact, there's kind of a way to say that. A number of years ago, we were moving some of my mom's stuff up in the attic. Dad died when I was in college, a senior in college. And uh, mom lived in the same town as us or even with us for the last period of her life. And we had some of her stuff up in the attic. So at one point, I was moving one of these boxes, and I found inside this oil painting. I don't know, maybe three feet by two feet, maybe a little smaller than that. Looked like an island painting of some kind. In the corner, it said W.F. Hall and the number's 48. So I asked mom what it was. Turned out one of the 17 survivors was an oil painter. He made a painting of that island where these men spent that time for each of the survivors, 17 paintings. Mm. I had found my father's painting up in the attic all those years. So it hangs above my computer at home in my study where I can see it every day and is a daily reminder, really, of the call that I believe God has on my life to reach out to people like my father, to people that have the same kind of faith questions and struggles that we all do, but especially for those that are at this place where they're looking for help, they're looking for biblical hope and biblical answers. Yeah, I love that story. I really do. What To have that painting, that's that's got to be very, very special for you. Very special for me. If there's a fire in the house, that'll be the first thing I say. <laughs> I understand. In my office, my dad was an auto worker, and in my office, I have his lunch bucket on the shelf, and uh, I'm looking at it right now, and it's a reminder to me of his sacrifice uh, for me, you know, that he logged into the factory every day to provide for his family. So I know exactly what you mean. Very interesting. Well, you're dedicating your life then to equipping believers with uh, with biblical perspectives. Um, give me a little example of some of the issues. I mean, the list goes on and on, I know, but what are some more, more recent things you've talked about? 
Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, it's really on two levels. On one level, we do more evergreen content where we're writing uh, material that uh, will hopefully equip believers over time to be able to think biblically about cultural issues. So we have a series of what we call biblical insights to tough questions. We're finishing our sixth volume in that right now. I did a coronavirus edition of one when all of this started. And what these are are short chapters that are dealing with questions that readers have asked us things they've asked us to speak into and to be able to talk about and such. I have a series of books, oh, 12 or 15 books on various subjects, various uh, theological, cultural, apologetic issues, everything from the classic apologetic context, uh, why should we trust scripture, why is Jesus the only way to God, how do we believe in the resurrection, over to issues that are uh, more culturally uh, uh, centered, LGBTQ issues, religious uh, liberty issues, uh, what to do about uh, medical ethics context, especially around uh, uh, genetic medicine is an interest of mine. Radical Islam is an interest of mine. I spent some time in the Muslim world uh, years ago, and I've been to Israel 30 times over the years, so I'm interested in the Middle East. But then on a daily basis, what I'm doing every morning, get up really early, and finish an article that's devoted to that day's subject, of what's oh. going on in the news at that point in time so it's that very I can speak current, into. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that I'm really fascinated uh, to do. I wrote this morning on the death of Robbie Zacharias. Um, I uh, just finished something on the voice winner, Todd Tillman, hmm. who uh, hmm. won the voice this week and uh, is a pastor yeah. and a worship leader. I just watched the video on YouTube just a few moments ago, actually. I was unaware of until, yeah. He had literally never sung outside his church till his <laughs> wife really just almost coerced him to audition for The Voice, and now he won The Voice. He's the oldest yeah. person ever to win The Voice. So yeah. I'm uh, talking about his victory in the context of the kind of peace we have in Christ and the witness right. that is. So it depends on what's on in the news. And then every day I'll write an article in response. Sounds incredible. And what great resources to put in people's hands. Now, as we have this conversation, uh, in time, Ravi Zacharias has just passed away. And I know you never met Ravi, but I think like all of us, you, you feel that sense of loss, don't you? I do. He was on uh, two levels, very, very important in my life. I read a lot of his work, heard him lecture any number of times, was obviously very, very impressed by his intellect, by his uh, remarkable ability to persuade people to biblical truth. When I've taught apologetics in four seminaries, we used his material a great deal of time. So there was this professional interest in what he had done. But on an even deeper level, it was a personal gratitude for who he was. What really shone through all of that was his passion for Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's kind of easy for somebody like me that kind of centers in the intellectual um, to really kind of divorce the head and the heart. And Robbie never did that. Right. In everything he did, it was clear that he was more in love with Jesus than he was last year. And he wanted you to be in love with Jesus. And that passion on the part of such a genius really has encouraged me over the years that if he with that intellect could love Jesus that deeply, then that encourages me to love Jesus as well. Yeah. And what struck me about his life was was the turnaround and how God was in it. Because here's a, a young man who was very troubled, didn't do well at school, um, really contemplated suicide and nearly succeeded at, when he was 17 years old. And yet God used him later in his life in just tremendous ways. I know that there was a chance for him to join the uh, Indian Air Force, and he was rejected even though he was overqualified. But he looks back, he looked back on that and said, if I had taken the Air Force job, I wouldn't have become what God wanted me to become. So there's a lot of lessons there for us, aren't there? There really are, and he was always happy to share those lessons. That particular story, had he joined the Indian Air Force, he would never have immigrated to Canada. And it was that move to Canada that ultimately led to his theological education and to the launch of the ministry. One of the things I so uh, so was grateful about in his life was his transparency about those very issues. And uh, trying to equip Christians to defend biblical authority, one of the points we try to make is that the transparency of Scripture 
is one of the most remarkable facts relative to its credibility. If I were telling the story of David, I would have left out Bathsheba. Hmm. If I were telling the story of Peter, I would have mm-hmm. left out the denials of Christ. Yeah. If I were telling Ravi's story, I would leave out the attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. I would leave out the despair of his young life and the real frustrations and the failures of his life. He never tired of telling those stories as a way of drawing people to the Christ who saved him, to the Christ that gave him purpose and, and passion and, and mission for life. And it's just so inspiring to see that level of honesty and love for the Lord. We'll continue this conversation with Dr. Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum coming up on First Person. I decided to escape North Korea after listening to FEBC's broadcast. I was able to keep my faith firm by listening to your programs. Just one of millions of grateful people who listens to the Far East Broadcasting Company in her own language. FEBC is dedicated to taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. To learn more, please visit febc.org. That's febc.org. The Far East Broadcasting Company, until all have heard. My guest is Dr. Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum. We'll put information about Jim and this uh, resource-rich ministry at firstpersoninterview.com. Jim, a couple of times you've mentioned the importance of biblical authority, and I'm just wondering if you would comment on that. Are we making progress in the church? Are, is, the, is the typical believer today really taking this seriously? And I wonder if we aren't afraid sometimes to engage because we don't really have the confidence that we should in the Bible's authority. I completely agree. When in, I think it's on two levels. On the one level, from a kind of a philosophy perspective, as you know, in the last generation, we've made a turn that academicians speak of as postmodern relativism. The idea is that truth is personal, individual, and subjective. Now, there's a long story behind that. We could talk about going back to Immanuel Kant and Nietzsche and the postmodern thinkers and all of that. But the bottom line, 92% of Americans say they are their own sole determiner of moral truth. There's this idea that all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, whether it's the Bible or your opinions, or my opinions, you therefore have no right to force your beliefs on me. And, and that's seeping into the church as well. It absolutely is. And the younger you get, unfortunately, the more that is really the stereotypical position. The idea is that tolerance is the real value of the day. And to insist on biblical truth on any subject is to be intolerant, whether it's the uniqueness of Christ, the necessity of faith in Him for salvation, certainly relative to moral issues from the definition of marriage to what Scripture thinks about same-sex relationships, abortion, euthanasia. There's just this idea in the culture and increasingly in the church that we really just don't want to be forcing our views on you. And there's this idea the Bible doesn't have an objective, authoritative position. It's just my opinion. It's how I read the Bible. So I can tell you, well, here's what Paul says about same-sex relations. And you'll come along and say, well, that's your view. That's your position. They might even say that's Paul's view, but that doesn't have to be my view. Mm -hmm. So when we lose that foundation, then as Jesus said, when you're building your house on the sand and the storms come and the rains fall, the house is going to fall. And that's what I'm afraid we're seeing today. Yeah. I sometimes hear people mistakenly say that they're trying to make the Bible relevant. Um, mm. You're not making the Bible. The Bible can take care of itself. It is relevant. Exactly. So Martin Luther said the Bible is a lion. It doesn't need to be defended, only unleashed, <laughs> only uncaged, yeah. you know? Yeah. I had a philosophy professor in seminary who said, we don't make the Bible relevant because human nature doesn't change and God's nature doesn't change. All we do is demonstrate the relevance of the Bible. For instance, I was preaching one time in the first church I pastored, a wonderful country church while I was teaching at the seminary. But on a particular Sunday, I was preaching on the Good Samaritan. 
that particular Sunday, a friend of mine brought an African-American friend with him to church. And I looked out and there were people that weren't sitting by him. Hmm. They were kind of sitting at distance from him. This is a long time ago, many, many years ago. And I was very upset about that. I was preaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan and no one got mad. And I realized I didn't do it right. Huh. So the next week I came back and retold the parable as though it were an African-American who had stopped to help a white person who had been mugged and left on the side of the road after the pastor and the chairman of deacons left him by, and they got mad, which really they should have, you know? Uh, I think there's a point to be made that uh, William Williman says that Jesus' stories got him killed. These aren't just nice stories. Well, I didn't make the story relevant. All I did was demonstrate the relevance of the story that was already there. Exactly. When we remove these cultural hindrances and roadblocks, people see the story for what it is, and then the Holy Spirit speaks with exactly the same authority that he used when he inspired the truth. Hmm. We mentioned earlier that for us, it's the month of May right now when this conversation is taking place, but listeners are hearing this in July. So we don't know precisely what the condition of the pandemic is right now across the world, and more specifically where we live in the U.S., but just your thoughts on the coronavirus and what's ahead for us. I mean, it's obviously still with us at this time, and uh, it's going to be with us for a while longer, and it's still interrupting life, if you will, uh, for us. Uh, I'm sure you've written on this, Jim. Mm -hmm. I have. That's certainly the expectation. Uh, We could talk about the cure, uh, the race for vaccines, for therapies, for prophylactics, all of that uh, by July. The expectation anyway is that we will not have that available to us on a level that will really make a person's individual experience with this virus any different than it is in May. Uh, I'm sorry to say that. Hopefully I'll be wrong. Hopefully that won't be the case, but that's certainly the expectation. And uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, why it takes so long to develop effective vaccines, typically four years Mm -hmm. to develop a vaccine, if a vaccine can be developed at all. We don't have a vaccine for AIDS. It'll mutate, so the vaccine will be 100% effective. Exactly. So that's one of the fears here is that this will be like seasonal flu. There are actually four different flus that you get a flu shot for every year. But between the time when they develop the vaccine and when you take it, the virus has mutated such that it's about 45% effective on a good year. So the fear is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus will mutate in such a way that even if we have a virus today, it won't be effective a year from now. We don't know how long that vaccine will promote effectiveness and and immunity. We don't know if there will be seasonal immunity. We don't know if therapies that can mitigate against the symptoms will be effective. And so really in July, the case as it is now is going to be that we have to treat this as a threat, as an absolute threat to life. At the same time, you can't live in sequestered. You can't live in quarantine for a year. You just can't do that. So you have to ask yourself, what's the risk? What's the reward? And as you're saying, exactly, it depends on the community where you live. It depends on your pre-existing health conditions. It exists on your own family environment, the degree to which you might infect others that are at risk that you're not. There's a whole, really, a whole spectrum of issues that we have to consider as we go forward. Yeah, well, let's use this uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 era uh, to, uh, to think about biblical thinking. How do we apply biblical thinking when it intersects with our health, with our personal liberties, our liberties as U.S. citizens? Um, How do we apply biblical thinking to all of this? The bottom line that really resonates in me is my belief that God redeems all that he allows. Because God is all-knowing, he saw this pandemic before we did. Because he's all-loving, he would want to stop it, you would think. And because he's all-powerful, he could, and yet he hasn't. And so you come along and ask why. Well, there are all sorts of mysteries inside that, as you know, when the conversation about evil and suffering theodicy is a difficult one on many levels. But I do know this 
that whatever God allows, he redeems for a greater, larger purpose. Hmm. I'm not saying I'll understand that. Right. I'm not saying I'll know that. Yeah. I don't and, and it may not happen immediately. We may not oh, see Oh, by it. no means. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says we look through a glass darkly, but one day face to face, and one day we'll know what we don't know. I don't understand the ways God's redeeming my father's death when I was in college on a level that makes sense of that for me, but I know I will one day. Maybe not until I'm in heaven, but one day I know that I will. Well, I know that God is working to redeem this crisis. To redeem, He didn't cause it. He didn't for that purpose, but he's redeeming it. And one way, for instance, he's doing this is we're seeing people turn to him in remarkable numbers through yeah. technology, through conversations like this. Right. I know about a church in California that had 8,000 in their online service before the pandemic, 1.3 million on Easter Sunday. <laughs> is that right? We've seen our podcast double in recent weeks. We've seen our web traffic more than double. People are reaching out. The Google searches for prayer in March skyrocketed. So they're asking the questions they need to be asking spiritually. They are, because we're now aware of mortality on a level that we weren't before. Mortality hasn't changed. Death rate's still 100%. But if every person I see could be infected and could infect me with a deadly virus, now I'm having to think about eternity. I'm having to think about mortality on a different level. And God's redeeming that. God's using that. And God's also, I would say, using digital technology, such as this conversation that didn't exist a generation ago, mm-hmm. to make the gospel more available to people yeah. at the very time when more people are searching for the gospel. Maybe that's Bottom the reason line, we have the technology. I believe it's in his providence. I absolutely do. We believe in our ministry. It's in God's providence 11 years ago that he launched a digital ministry focused on answering cultural questions of biblical truth for such a time as this. Not only for this time, but especially for this time we think. Ultimately, I'm praying for a spiritual awakening to come as a result. Amen. Well, just taking that one uh, scenario here and applying biblical thinking is a good example of what you do with the Denison Forum. And there's such great resources available. Again, we'll put a link to them at firstpersoninterview.com. Jim, in conclusion, is there a particular passage of scripture, a verse, something that really drives your life, that really uh, you champion for your life? Yeah, thank you for that. Ephesians 4.15 is really the mantra of my life, speaking the truth in love. It's difficult to do both. In our culture, as we were saying, you can appear to be unloving if you speak the truth. And I know people who speak the truth in a way that isn't loving. It's the both of those, isn't it? It's speaking truth. It's declaring biblical wisdom. That's the, that's the great need of our culture. That's the great need of the day. If I had a vaccine for COVID, wouldn't, wouldn't you deserve to have that tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Well, we have the vaccine for eternal death. Mm-hmm. We have the answer that every soul is created to want, to need. It's Augustine's statement that our hearts are restless till they rest in him. Pascal said that we have a God-shaped emptiness in every one of us. And you and I have the answer for that. So we want to be speaking the truth. But the right way to do that, of course, is to do that in love, to do that out of a spirit of gratitude and generosity, to do that not so God will love me, but because God loves me, to share this with you as beggars helping beggars find bread, is the great privilege of life, and that's the opportunity that's ours. That's why that verse, Ephesians 4.15, drives me every day. Our guest has been Dr. Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum. We'll have additional information about him, including his daily article, his podcast, and his multiple books at firstpersoninterview.com. Solid biblical thinking, as we've heard from Jim Dennison, is much needed in our world. The interview you've heard today and past programs are archived online at firstpersoninterview.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts or download our interviews with our smartphone app, First Person Interview, available free in your app store. Please join me in thanking the Far East Broadcasting Company for making First Person possible. 
I invite you to go to febc.org and learn how the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed in many countries via radio and the internet. The Far East Broadcasting Company online at febc.org. Until all have heard. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person. Thank you.